This epiphany in Lent at uh, Kenilworth Union Church, I've been preaching sort of verse by verse from beginning to end through Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. Paul tells us early in that letter that he is writing it from a Roman prison cell, so I've been calling this sermon series Letters from Prison. We are at chapter 2, verse 12 today. Therefore, my beloved, just as you always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but even much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work within you, enabling you both to will and to work for God's good pleasure. So do all things without murmuring or arguing so that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation so that you might shine like stars in the world. It's by your holding fast to the word of life that I can boast on the day of Christ that I did not run in vain nor labor in vain. But even if I'm being poured out as a libation over the sacrifice and the offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. And I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I may be cheered by news of you. I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Timothy's worth you know, how like a son with a father he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things are going with me, and I trust in the Lord that I will come also soon. Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So there's a lot going on in the Christian church this morning. For global Christians, it's the first Sunday in Lent. For Roman Catholic and Episcopalian and Lutheran Christians, it's the feast day of St. Valentine. And for American Christians, of course, it is President's Day weekend, as you can see from the vast hordes that have descended on the sanctuary this morning. So I've been thinking about prisoners and presidents this week a little bit. Some presidents become prisoners. I think of Panama's Manuel Noriega or Chile's Augusto Pinochet or Iraq's Saddam Hussein. Some presidents become prisoners. Thank God. On the other hand, some Prisoners become presidents, thank God. For instance, in 1975, Václav Havel was a moderately successful playwright in his native Czechoslovakia when he suddenly decided that he was mad as hell and he wasn't going to take it anymore. He was so upset by the flattening of the human spirit under communist Czechoslovakia and the deadening of the human spirit and the vast uniformity it imposed on the people. And so in 1975, he wrote this letter to Communist Party General Secretary Gustav Huzak, which became famous and incendiary. In that letter, he talked about the aesthetics of banality in communist Czechoslovakia and the cult of right-thinking mediocrity. And he just slandered the regime from beginning to end. Mr. Havel, after all, was one of the first ones to refer to communist Czechoslovakia as absurdistan. 
And so it probably won't surprise you that in politic language like this, finally got Václav Havel thrown into a jail cell for five years. His prison warden, an unreconstructed admirer of Adolf Hitler, took an instant dislike to political dissidents like Václav Havel when he found out that Mr. Havel was volunteering to write letters for the gypsies who could not read or write. The warden threw Mr. Havel into solitary confinement. He wrote all these hundreds of letters to his beloved wife, Olga. They're collected in a beautiful little book called Letters to Olga. He signs off on everyone with this, I kiss you. It was the only way he could reach out to touch her by signing his letters, I kiss you. Of course, Mr. Havel's five years of imprisonment did him absolutely no good because as soon as he gains his freedom, he resumes his epistolary warfare with communist Czechoslovakia. And finally, he wins. He and Lech Walesa in Poland are the two most important people in the disintegration of communism in Eastern Europe and the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989. Not a shot was fired. They called it the Velvet Revolution. The Velvet Revolution. Then, of course, Mr. Havel serves as president of Czechoslovakia and later the Czech Republic for 14 years. In 2003, President Bush awards him the Presidential Medal of Freedom to a Czech. When he dies in 2011, President Obama will say his peaceful resistance shook the foundations of an empire. Today, if you visit the Capitol building in Washington, you'll notice that in the rotunda there is a bust of Mr. Havel to honor his peaceful resistance. He is one of four non-Americans to be so honored, along with, among others, Winston Churchill. And I guess I find these letters from prison so moving and so poignant because they give expression to the irrepressibility of the human spirit, right? I mean, imprisonment is about confinement, obviously. It's about the constriction of the free creature. He sits in these nine-foot by ten-foot dimensions between these drab walls and in this stagnant air and behind these implacable iron bars and unpickable locks. And the only way to free the spirit and to connect with those you love and long for is to toss a missive over the barbed wire and hope it finds its mark. And so Václav Havel writes to his beloved wife Olga, I kiss you. That's the way he signs off on his letters. St. Paul doesn't want to send a kiss to his friends in Philippi, so he sends a friend instead. Do you remember how we've been talking about this letter of Paul to the church at Philippi? Paul had founded this church early in his career, probably early in the 40s A.D., not that long after all, after Jesus had died and rose again. So Paul is early in his career and he founds this young church. And over the years, from a distance, for various reasons, this becomes his favorite congregation. He establishes his most, fr most precious friendships and Philippi. And now it's 20 years later, 62 A.D., and Paul is in a Roman prison cell, tossed there for creating this huge ruckus for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. The charges are blasphemy and treason, serious charges. It's the Roman district attorney who brings the indictment, a serious empire. 
Nero is on the throne in Rome, a serious man. Paul's in big trouble. And so he can't be of any help to these Philippians who are 700 miles away. He's trapped in this prison cell, and so he sends his love via his dearest friend. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon because you know that he's like a son to me. So Paul's world is nine feet by ten feet. He's caged in, but he will not stop and he will not give up. He frees his spirit by sending his friend and also his inimitable advice. Be blameless and innocent, he says. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Shine like stars in the world, he says. Be blameless and innocent in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. In other words, be Christ in a Christless world. Make me proud. You are my life's work. You are my pride and joy. Show God that I have not run in vain and labored in vain. Shine like stars in the world. Some prisoners become presidents. Thank God. Nelson Mandela was 44 years old when they threw him into a prison cell in 1964 on Robben Island, a former mental hospital seven seven miles off the coast of Cape Town. 44 years old. When he finally emerges in 1990, he will be 71. 27 years. They let him write two letters a year and receive two visitors a year. And when Winnie comes, his beloved wife Winnie comes to visit him, they sit on opposite sides of inch-thick glass. He won't touch his wife for 21 years. When he goes in, his daughter is a toddler. When he comes out, she has a toddler of her own. And from his prison cell, Nelson Mandela writes, there are victories whose glory lies in the fact that they are known only to those who win them. Prisons and authorities conspired to rob each person of his dignity. And in and of itself, that assured that I would survive. For anyone or any institution that tries to rob me of my dignity will lose because I will not part with it for any purpose and under any pressure. That sounds like presidential timber to me. And so as year exceeds to year and Mr. Mandela's imprisonment approaches half a lifetime, the international outcry will swell and swell with greater intensity so that in London and Paris and Chicago and New York and L.A. there are free Mandela rallies and free Mandela posters. And Nelson Mandela will later joke, he says, these Americans who were celebrating these free Mandela Rallies had no idea who I was. They thought free was my first name. And they were right, weren't they? Nelson Mandela's first name is Free. And so in 1994, they hold the first free elections in South African history. And Zulu and Zosa and Swazi South Africans stand in line for hours and for literally miles to cast a vote. And it's Mr. Mandela that they put into office. He serves just one term, but I don't think it's too much of an exaggeration to say that if Nelson Mandela had not been South Africa's first president, it would not exist as a unified nation today. You know what South Africa calls itself? 
the rainbow nation. Somewhere over the rainbow. Your dreams come true. Now, if you're interested in exploring this further, Mr. Mandela's autobiography, Long Walk to Freedom, is a beautiful story. Also a wonderful title, right? Long Walk to Freedom, because for South African blacks and for American blacks, the walk to freedom is always very long. Long Walk to Freedom. But if a 500-page book is too much of a commitment for you just now, here's the Cliff Notes version. In two hours, you could get the same story by watching this fine little 2009 film called Invictus. It's really just a small, quiet film, a snapshot of the life of Nelson Mandela, one year in his life. But in two hours, you can learn everything you need to know about this man, this great man, and about South Africa's struggle. In the early 90s, when Mr. Mandela became one of the most famous persons in the world, a reporter asked him, so, Madiba, who do you want to play you in the movie they'll make of your life? Didn't even have to think about it. He said, Morgan Freeman. Mr. Freeman has experience playing prisoners, right? Remember the Shawshank Redemption? So 20 years go by, it's 2008, and Morgan Freeman decides to make this little movie about one year in Mr. Mandela's life, and he calls it Invictus. And Mr. Freeman's production company produces the film, and Mr. Freeman obviously stars as its famous protagonist. And they do an early screening for the old president, who is by now almost 90 years old, and Mr. Mandela turns to Mr. Freeman with gratitude and he says, now they will remember me. Can you think of a higher compliment than that? One of the greatest global citizens of the 20th century turning to a Hollywood actor and with humility he says, now they will remember me. One last thing, and then I'll quit. I want to talk about one more prisoner who became president, almost. I want to talk about Donald Trump's favorite failed fighter pilot. Do you remember when John McCain ran for the Republican nomination in the year 2000? Ran against George W. Bush, obviously. Do you remember what they called his campaign bus? He called it the Straight Talk Express. And so Senator McCain would zip across the country with this bus full of reporters, and he would tell them anything. They were shocked that he would tell them the unvarnished truth. It's probably why he lost the nomination. One reporter said that politics has always been this dodgy game of sly compromise and circumlocution, and Senator McCain was incapable of circumlocution. Maybe that happens when you spend five and a half years at the Hanoi Hilton as a North Vietnamese prisoner of war. Maybe you decide that life is too short for circumlocution. Or then do you remember in 2008 when Senators McCain and Obama went against each other in pursuit of the presidency? Late in the presidential campaign at a McCain rally, a woman stood up and said 
I can't trust Obama because, he, because he's an Arab. And Senator McCain quickly protested, No, ma'am, he said. Senator Obama is a decent family man and a good citizen whom I just happen to have disagreements with on fundamental issues. It's one of those rare moments of civility in recent American politics. I guess when you've spent five years under, under brutal interrogation, you just cling to the truth and decide that life is too short for mendacity. And in his memoir about his five years at the Hanoi Hilton, John McCain tells a story about a fellow prisoner. This fellow prisoner's name was Mike Christian. And Mike Christian came from a poor family in Selma, Alabama. He never owned a pair of shoes before the age of 13. And when he's 17 years old, he enlists in the Navy and he becomes a bombardier navigator. And he's shot down over North Vietnam six months before John McCain is becomes a POW in 1967. Sometimes these prisoners of war would receive packages from their families back home, and sometimes these packages would contain clothing items, scarves or handkerchiefs. And so over the months, Mike Christian starts squirreling away little patches of red and white cloth. The prisoners wear blue shirts. And somehow Mike Christian manages to fashion a crude needle out of a stalk of bamboo. And he begins stitching these patches of red and white cloth into his blue shirt until he has a small American flag on the inside of his shirt. And then when his captors find it, they take his shirt away and rip it into shreds and they beat him almost to death. They puncture an eardrum and break several ribs. And when it's all over, they throw him back into the barracks where the other POWs help Mike into his bunk. And then they all try to fall asleep. And just before John McCain drifts off to sleep, he glances over into the corner and he sees Mike Christian wedging himself into the corner under a naked light bulb with his crude bamboo needle fashioning a new American flag in his new shirt, even though his eyes are so swollen shut, he can barely see. You and I live much smaller, quieter lives, don't we? I hope none of us are ever in that situation. Still, life in smaller ways can take almost everything from us that we have. Our livelihood, sometimes our loved ones, sometimes our health sometimes even our freedom. The world can take almost everything away, but it cannot take away our decency and our civility and our honor and our souls. Those things belong to us. And so remember Paul's advice from this Roman prison cell. Be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation shine like stars in the world in the name of the father and the son and the holy ghost amen